Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. My grandmother's best friend was her younger sister, Daryl. For the majority of their lives, they lived within five to ten minutes of one another. But the consequences of old age and declining health would eventually cause a separation of 150 miles, though they would continue to speak on the phone nearly every day for the remainder of my grandmother's life. One of the fondest memories I have of a time spent with my grandmother was the day I drove her up to the North Georgia town of Hawassi to visit Aunt Daryl. It ended up being kind of a perfect day. Hawassi had long been a special place for me. I spent lots of time there as a youth, staying at my Aunt Daryl and Uncle Slats' cabin that overlooked Lake Chatoog. It's where I immediately retreated following my grandfather's death, and it's also where I proposed to my wife. So I was more than happy to take this trip to the mountains with my grandmother. My cousins from Florida were also there visiting, and it was really great to see them. I remember us going out on the lake in this rickety old fishing boat, which made me kind of anxious, but overall it was great. But really the highlight of that day was just watching my grandmother and Aunt Daryl sitting next to one another just talking. I can still vividly picture these two old women sitting in the living room, not concerned with anything around them, totally immersed in their conversation. Just two old pals that hadn't seen each other in several months, being able to finally be together again. They both seemed so happy and grateful. I remember thinking how lucky they were to have had each other their entire lives, which inevitably made me think about my own relationship with my siblings, especially my sister Sarah. I love Sarah, but it wasn't always easy being her younger brother. For one, she used to constantly beat the shit out of me, but also she was and still is extremely brilliant. She was blessed with natural intelligence, but is also a really hard worker, which has not always been the case with me. Frankly, it was hard to compete, or for that matter, even keep up. She just seemed to be good at everything, and as a kid, I probably resented her for that, as I'm sure she resented me for being way more likable. But as we both got older, our relationship did eventually improve. I would even go as far as to say that we began to really like each other and would become great pals during our college years, where she would serve as an invaluable support system, especially during those first couple of years as I floundered in my new environment. We began eating lunch together every Friday, and I think during that time, it was the closest we've ever been. I remember after one specific lunch, my sister needed to go to Borders Bookstore. I was in the music section, and I happened upon a record by a band that I had recently started listening to. The record was AM by Wilco. Having previously purchased and loved Summer Teeth only a few weeks prior, I figured this would probably be an essential purchase. This was in 2002, which would end up being a really good year to get into this band. I'm talking Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, that Sam Jones documentary, plus all the music to explore from their incredibly rich back catalog of albums and related projects. So being fully immersed in that world, it was natural that I would eventually find my way to the Autumn Defense, a band composed of Wilco bassist John Sterrett and future Wilco multi-instrumentalist Pat Sansone. I remember going to their website, 
with the intent of purchasing their second album, Circles, which eventually led me to the Broadmoor Records website. And that is where I discovered another Stirrit-related project, an album called Arabella, which he had recorded with his twin sister Lori, who was in the band Blue Mountain, another recent musical discovery that I really loved. So I figured this would probably be a record for me. So I went ahead and ordered a copy of Lori and John's 2004 album, Arabella. And when it arrived at my house, I put it on and I listened. This is the story of that record. I'm Laurie Sterrett. I'm a co-writer on Arabella with my brother John, and I played acoustic guitar and um, lots of vocals. I'm John Stewart. I'm co-songwriter of the material and played guitar, a little lap steel, and a few other instruments. Twin siblings, Lori and John Sterrett, grew up in the town of Mandeville, Louisiana, and due to its close proximity to New Orleans, the siblings would experience the city's rich culture from an early age. Well, I mean, there's something about when you grow up in a place, you don't really know how special or different it is until you travel, you know, and then some people never really travel, which is kind of interesting. So how would they, I mean, New Orleans is this alternate reality. Um, that, you know, I think a lot of the people there are just kind of living in for their whole lives, which is, you know, amazing. Um, until I started traveling and, you know, even in the South and certainly in the Midwest and also in, at the time period growing up there in the late 70s, 80s, how unchanged it had been um, as far as the radio, the radio would, you know, I just thought, you know, the meters were played on the radio everywhere in uh, in the country. And um, you don't really get an idea until you go to the Midwest or something. And yeah. You go to a lot less colorful places. Our formative years were in a suburban setting outside of New Orleans. So there were aspects of it that were, were very they were generic. But, you know, New Orleans and even a New Orleans suburb is can be a pretty colorful place. The town where we actually grew up was a really small town. And it did have a little bit of a suburban feel because of the um, all the oil and gas industry. There's a lot of transient families like that were being transferred all over the country. And so it was colorful in that way that, you know, we might have a neighbor from Seattle or a neighbor from Boston or, you know, and... Um, I think for a small town in Louisiana, that was unusual. Um, but it was a beautiful place, and it was great growing up on the lake. And, um, you know, it kind of had its own culture because the town's old. You know, a lot of the longtime residents or family that had, you know, 
grandparents and great grandparents there, and they were really uh, colorful as well. So it was sort of a interesting place. Town's called Mandeville, and it was um, a really kind of hysterical place to grow up, just in terms of the yeah the local color. I mean, at that point, it's now big and has become kind of a suburb of New Orleans. But um, at the time, it was a you know what people called an arts community. Uh, for you know, four thousand or something. Um, probably because like two hippies live there. I think that's what qualifies <laughs> as an arts community in in Louisiana. But uh, it was beautiful and and uh, on Lake Pontchartrain and and uh, it was really amazing just to be able to you know be on the lake, but also these really old kind of uh, Victorian houses, kind of haunted houses on the lakefront, and you know it's old. It, it was um. You know, Bienville um, actually, I think, founded it as a sort of getaway from yellow fever in New Orleans and everything. It was always known for good air and a little out of the swamp and kind of a refuge from disease. But uh, yeah, fun place to grow up. It is through their parents that the siblings would become interested in music. My father was a jazz musician, played Dixieland banjo with his family, with sort of um, just kind of continued on and especially really picked up after he got a little bit older later in life, like in his 70s. He continued to play and gosh, he had a gig about a month before he died, I think. It was really, I think, the, the joy of his life, really. I remember really early just crawling around my mother's closet and finding these old instruments banjos and opening them up and just the smell of a of like a you know banjo from 1918 or something it was just like whoa what is that and then and it was just there was a lot of mystery it just smelled really i remember the smells of those things more than anything but then we started just kind of plunking away and um I, I started on banjo and i believe laurie started on guitar um correct me if i'm wrong laurie but um mm, and, right. and dad had um he was he was doing dixieland music at that point it was a lot of you know five foot two sort of classic dixieland which was really cool because it just opened up the chord structures a little bit more you know it, you were cognizant of changes a little bit from an early age even though i couldn't really always like uh, grasp them but there was this, like sort of really nice i don't know just this um you know this idea of like like tin pan alley and just like different approach my mom who was like super into country music and i remember her with emmy lou harris records um and um which were super formative for me on the countryside right. and uh so it was like this kind of nice you know country meets urban kind of thing with my mother who's from mississippi and my my dad who i guess was originally from new york and i, I remember that whole um you know, finding those instruments in the closet. And and I think, I don't know, people maybe who don't play an instrument or really haven't opened up a case that, you know, holds an old instrument. There is a smell that's like, and I remember that smell. It's kind of this real earthy sort of smell. And um, the instruments that dad and mom both had were really, they were great instruments and they were really beautiful and, you know, I I still have that that Gibson that mom owned, and I've never bought another acoustic guitar because it was that was all the acoustic guitar I ever needed or wanted. You know, and it was I think in 1954 LG one, and uh, I've played it on pretty much every record that I've ever been on. I think so. Uh, so that was yeah, that was a big deal, and our family 
we would get together at my grandmother's in New Orleans for Thanksgiving and they had, my grandmother had some old friends of theirs that were uh, really into music too. And they would come over and they'd play piano and the gentleman would play stand up bass and dad would play banjo. And um, it was just kind of amazing, you know, and it was really, it was really fun. I mean, it it was just really special. It was so lively, you know, the, the, their names were the fixes and they, they were just like a light. You could tell it was just like going to a party in like 1951. Like that's what you did. I mean, there would be a hot, could be a high five, but people generally still made their own music at parties. And he would pull out the kazoo every once in a while. (laughs) He was a big, he was a really big man. And he would just kind of save the kazoo and he would drop this like high decibel kazoo on the room and uh, all the kids would just roll like it was just so it was so so terrifying and hilarious <laughs> we would just roll around and uh really set the tone for for what became like kind of a family band later on with you know us all at least me and Laurie especially and our brother Avery to some extent and uh dad and whoever else was around you know our uh, fellow musicians and later bands and everything so it was it was really great it was completely social and fun and you know just the way music should should be starting out right. after graduating from high school the siblings would attend different colleges but eventually reunite in oxford mississippi to begin playing music together john went to old miss uh, when we graduated and i went to lsu and um and then I, I quit after about a year and moved to New Orleans and played around there some, but never really found a, a solid, you know, group of people to play with. And so John was playing in a band in Oxford and their bass player quit. And he asked me if I wanted to come up up there and play bass. And I'd been to Oxford a couple of times and I really loved it. I mean, it was really a pretty amazing town then uh, just artistically speaking you know amazing writers and photographers and you know it was a very kind of bohemian for mississippi so it was really an interesting place to me it was um you know oxford was such a literary town and it kind of just opened my mind to something different that i'd never been around and started reading a lot my memories of going up there to look at the school, like a pre-college trip with my parents and walking into the Hoka that, you know, that sort of um, underground art house cinema and an old cotton warehouse. And it was just so funky and walking in there and seeing Barry Hanna and all these like Willie Morris who edited Harper's Weekly in New York for years. And it was just this like crazy bohemian concentration at that point in just such a manageable small town. And I mean, Mississippi is just so colorful anyway. And the proximity to the hill country and the blues scene there, and that was all emerging at that point. I kind of wanted to just get out of Louisiana and, um, you know, <laughs> didn't make it that far, but, you know, <laughs> but um, really loved Oxford from the beginning. And yeah, Laurie had been there a little bit and we were looking to play music together. Um, so it was a natural thing to get her into that band, The Hilltops, which we had sort of established at that point.
yeah, it was it was fun to travel. The Southeast was really was really fun. It was like you know Huntsville, Alabama, the Tip Top, the you know <laughs> amazing WC Don's uh, Club in Jackson, Mississippi. That was actually a double wide trailer um, with a psychotic staff and owner. That I mean, it it was incredibly colorful to to tour the south at that point in the 80s and uh the the local scenes were just so strong you know everybody would just i mean this is just it's hard to imagine the world back then but people would just go to clubs every night to see whatever band you know it just was it was cheap enough and um, so the culture of, of rock clubs was just so strong it's just kind of hard to even I know it's hard it's to really it was amazing it, happened. it was incredible the bands every night Alex Chilton used to come down from Memphis and play Oxford, and we got the pleasure of opening for him a few times. Somebody sent us a ticket stub from one of the shows. It was Alex Chilton and the Hilltops, $5 cover. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was great. It was a pretty fertile time. I mean, and all over Mississippi, I mean, Hattiesburg had an amazing scene. So these sort of small town rock scenes where you know there's just something that people just tried harder you know in places like that following the disillusion of the hilltops in 1990 the siblings would go their separate ways for a bit with Lori and hilltops guitarist and singer carrie hudson forming the band blue mountain and john eventually joining the belleville illinois band uncle tupelo it was kind of a just a split, I guess. You know, I think Carrie and I were writing more, and we had become involved together in, in a relationship, which, you know, is breaking the cardinal rule. Don't <laughs> don't get involved with your bandmates. <laughs> but um, anyway, I guess that was kind of, you know, what happened. And, and John graduated and moved to New Orleans, and then he started playing with some folks down there. So it was just sort of a parting of ways, you know. Blue Mountain kind of formed, I guess, in Los Angeles because Carrie and I moved out there. I had gone and done a, a short stint with a band called the Blue Runners out of Lafayette, Louisiana. I, I went down and made a record with them. It was pretty short-lived. Ended up only being in the band for about six or seven months. But had always stayed in touch with, you know, the, the guys from Uncle Tupelo who we'd met with the Hilltops um, through through Laurie and Carrie, really. You know, we had toured with them in the later years of the Hilltops. Got a call from them asking me to guitar tech for them on a European tour. That was the fall of 92. I hadn't been to Europe at that point. I was really interested in trying to go. I'd replaced Brian Henneman from the Bottle Rockets as their guitar tech. You know, he was kind of on and off stage with the band. So I figured there might be an opportunity to, you know, play eventually, which is what happened when they made the following May. They made the Anodyne record. and I, I was going out there thinking I was just going to guitar tech again. And they, you know, stuck the guitar in my hand, you know, for the pre-production. Ended up making the whole record with them. So that was the beginning of 
you know, that and where I've ended up, really, to be honest. That was also a lot due to Laurie and Carrie, who actually got the original Uncle Tupelo demo at the college radio station and turned me on to it. And um, so, you know, I have them to thank for that as well. So (laughs) it changed my life for sure. In 1994, Uncle Tupelo disbands with the group's former members, including Stirrett, going on to form the band Wilco. For their debut album, Stirrett would contribute the track It's Just That Simple, marking the only time in the band's history that an album contained a song with lyrics not written by Jeff Tweedy. Wanting more of an outlet for his songwriting, Stirrett begins working on material with musician Pat Sansone, eventually leading to the formation of the Autumn Defense. I started seeing at guitar shops and at gigs and at record stores, you know, typical musician haunts. And he'd given me a copy of the Birdie on the Moon record that he did, the solo record, which was really um, great. He was part of the Hattiesburg scene and everything. Uh, I knew he was from Mississippi. Laurie, you had met him. I, and I think yeah. we, had run a, we had run across him at a gig at some point he, years before. We, we had down down in Hattiesburg, Jackson. It was, and then with the Hilltop, I think with the Hilltops once or twice. Then I know early on in Blue Mountain. So yeah. we kind of knew each other peripherally, I guess. He was working at Magazine sound recordings he was engineering at a studio uptown and um, I had these tunes I had contributed some Wilco stuff early on but I wasn't really getting much of an outlet for any of my material in the the band at that point so I started just trying to work on a solo record he was able to co-produce and just sort of you know basically help record and arrange this material I had which eventually became the first Autumn Defense record write anything on the first record but you know became more of a partnership but uh he was you know with his hair and with his, his clothes and his dance moves you know he you <laughs> de- definitely remembered him and uh the funny thing is i remember everyone called him back at that even at that point <laughs> was it, is that right yeah that there yeah. Was a point where everyone called him back and it must have been after like back emerged 93 94 but um <laughs> and uh it was the beginning of well, a lot of you know obviously a lot of years you know working together and he's very very generous with you know studio time and his own time and uh yeah it was it was great memories of doing that first autumn defense record at kingsway and with um some of the wilco guys and some um some other some other guys so good time after nearly a decade of constant touring and releasing records blue mountain breaks up in the summer of 2001 shortly thereafter lori makes the decision to relocate to chicago where John had been living for some time. Taking advantage of the reunion, 
the siblings decide to make music together once again and record an album. I moved to Chicago in 2003. Right. And it was winter time because I couldn't believe how cold it was when I got there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was late in the year. And I guess we started writing pretty quickly because the record came out in 2004. I was still at Thomas Street. That's right. Yeah. Um, and and you were we right. Demos. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and I was living we, downstairs. That's right. That's right. You know, it was, it was one of the first things you jumped into when you moved. Yeah, we got right on it. And you had already had a lot of the songs. I remember getting letters and CDs of what you had. And the material was so strong. And uh, we just knew we had to make a record from it. That 10 years ago today was so poignant. It was a song about our mother it was such a really nice dreamlike sort of um approach to it and really um you know resonated with me obviously yeah i remember i I wrote those songs after blue mountain broke up and um you know which was a hard transition because i was not only lost my band but also my you know marriage dissolved and uh those years between blue mountain breaking up and moving to chicago were really you know, not easy. Unfortunately, I am usually inspired um, by, I guess, sadness is a good way to put it. When you lose something, you know, you think about other things you've lost. And our mother was a big part of that for us, who we lost in, in our early 20s, I guess. And John, you know, was so supportive and he loved the, loved the material and started talking he's you should come up here and and uh so i did and it was it was great i was happy happy that i did it and we were able to work together for the first time really closely you know one-on-one so that was you know a great uh, memory it was a big a big deal for me so laurie's one of those people when she came to chicago she um she immediately had kind of more friends and I mean she she's just she's one of those people that people just gravitate towards and you know and I was on the road all the time in Chicago it was kind of rocky socially for me for a while there I was just like kind of always gone and just hard to kind of break in but Laurie you know sort of tending bar at the hideout it was like oh she she just got it from the you know she always just kind of lands in the right place and people love her and you know it's really you know, it's it's really it, it's funny. I, I always feel like it. You know, uh, just the way. You know, I don't know, just the way I, I've been able to work so much. You know, just having Wilco be such a thing over the years and everything. Um, but um, so much of it is because of her, really, to be honest. Sessions for the album would take place in Chicago and Nashville, with the Sturrets producing alongside Pat Sansone. Some of the sessions really coincided with some circles material, like the Nashville stuff we did was, you know, is sort of concurrent with it. I remember Pat would, he would leave, we would stay and work on the Laurie and John stuff. Um, trying to remember the first session that we did. We did the first actually demo sessions in John's apartment with a little eight track tape machine. Remember that, John? Yep, absolutely. Kind of demoed and did some t- tracking. John's apartment and then I think the first I guess real session we did was at the loft and it was just me you and Pat John that's right that's right yeah and we recorded like uh 10 years ago today there and 
gosh, maybe when you're not mine, some of them were like um, stripped down tracks on, on Arabella. We, we did that. Right, right. And, and I can't remember who engineered it, but I know Pat was kind of um, helping produce and also playing. I think Chris Brickley worked on that. That you know, he did. He, he That's recorded, exactly right. He re- yeah, he recorded. He like heavy metal drummer and some other stuff in that era. Wilco. But then the, I'd say the main session was the engine recording, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, a Nashville session, and then the sort of a lot of overdubbing sessions at at my house in Ukrainian Village. The real memories I have you know, are from my house, but also from Engine Studios, which was really fun because we did big ensemble recording, big room with everyone playing together and a lot of people playing on it, our extended network. <laughs> yeah, which was great. And there's so many great people played on the record. You know, Brad Jones played a lot of bass on the record and he's, of course, amazing. And, you know, Greg Wiz and John Piricello and... Jeff, you know, Tweedy played on it. Leroy Bach, Glenn Kochi played on it. It was a, such a great experience for me because it was just, you know, these players that were <laughs> just stellar, you know. If I didn't have confidence in those songs at the beginning, I did. <laughs> Once those folks uh, started playing on the songs and I was like, okay, this, yeah. this is going to work. Likewise, I, I feel the same way. It was, and there's something so, you know, because we did, we were putting a few songs together. We were trying to kind of build songs ourselves, you know, and everything. And, uh, but there's something about an ensemble and, and it's just like so realized. Yeah. It was just people from, you know, from Autumn Defense, but just from all over, all, you know, Nashville and Chicago. Yeah. It was really kind of like a extended musical community for us. And uh, that's really memorable for me. It was. And our our old friend, Will Kimbrough, who we first played with in, uh, I think, in Jackson, John, with uh, at W.C. Don's. Absolutely. Will and the Bushman. Will and the Bushman. And uh, back in the, you know, 88 or 87, something like that. And he, he played on the record, which is great. And so it was sort of like this uh, community, you know, this almost like a extended long distance family. <laughs> <laughs> And in the end, they made a record.
opening with subtle, dreamlike textures of piano and brightly strummed acoustic guitars, Arabella begins with the track, Ten Years Ago Today. Through its smart arrangement, the song slowly builds, eventually ascending into a fuller sound, aided by Pat Sansone's wonderful organ playing. But the true highlight of this track is Lori's wistful delivery of the song's poignant lyrics, which are movingly enhanced by her twin brother's effortless harmonies. after um, Blue Mountain broke up and it was one of the tracks I sent to John you know and I was working on some stuff and he really liked it you know really about our mother who passed away uh, when we were in our early 20s and I don't know I think in a way it was like the first time I'd really been able to maybe write about that sometimes things are so painful you don't want to deal with it I know songwriters are able to do that some songwriters but you know for me it's always kind of this I don't know boiling period of (laughs) I guess of feelings about things then at some point I'm able to you know if it's a painful thing you know then I can write about it and that song really came naturally at that point which is nice Um, I wrote it really quickly and uh and then when we went to the studio to record it, you know, we, John and I worked on the vocals a lot. We worked on the vocals on every song a lot. Pat and John also, you know, had some arrangement ideas, which were great. Uh, the um, uh, key change. What's the word? Sorry. In the in the uh, Modu- bridge, modulation. Module. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> it brought the song to a you know a different level and. So I thought it was a really nice uh, touch to the production on the song. I remember getting most of that at the at the studio in Ukrainian Village, and then working on it more at the loft. I, I remember that, Laurie. I don't know if you yeah, remember. we but, did. Um, but we also at Engine we tried like an electric version of it, a really loud oh, sort right. of version of it that I still Gosh, have. I forgot about yeah, that. that was cool. But the first version was a little more fitting. That was the song where I knew we really had to do the project really once we, I mean you know I mean that was like the first thing she sent me and it was like oh you know really strong material and yeah it was easy I long for you and I can't tell you why when I think about it I don't even want to try where is your heart in the thought I could take it along with me then You're like you 
With its lush arrangement that features soulful organ fills and beautifully understated pedal steel guitar, the breezy and melodic Juniper greatly exemplifies the Sterrett's gift for songcraft. Side note, this song has long held a special place in my heart due to the positive associations I have with the word Juniper, besides it just being phonetically pleasing. I first got into this album while I was in college, and where I was living at the time, depending on the time of day that I had class, I had to take certain routes to avoid the awful Atlanta traffic. One particular route I would take would put me on Juniper Street, and when I made it onto that street, that usually meant that I would make it to class on time, and inevitably, the chorus of the song would always pop into my head. That was recorded engine with John Piercello on pedal steel, and uh, yeah, fantastic. He's you know longtime member of the Autumn Defense and amazing player. Yeah, and uh, you know definitely part of the original band and everything. It was just like a six eight sort of feel. Um, you know, try to throw one of those in every record or something, and you know a six eight or a three quarter time. You know, wall usually. I have a lot of those, but um, it was a really effortless sort of song. I, I think, uh, yeah, Arabella, like that title. I don't know, a lot of New Orleans street names were sort of evoked in it. Um, there is a Juniper Street. There's a Japonica Street. There's an Arabella. I was just kind of living in Chicago and sort of remembering, it, you know, a little more of a pastoral sort of a, a memory of, you know, a lot of winter times up north. You know, you kind of winter mornings, you kind of like look back and like say wow sure would be nice to be warm right now or to see something alive you know and, and i think that was the sort of feeling i was getting at that point there was a book i was reading at the time called um frenchmen their good children i don't know i was sort of fixated leaving new orleans i was fixated on the city that was a, a great book about new orleans street names yeah and um i remember that, that was definitely an inspiration for, for a lot of these titles a lot of these songs really just sort of came out in that way it was just trying to write a good tune you know yeah those they're still so great they invoke a lot of feelings i mean tennessee williams you know streetcar named desire and i mean it just it's just never ending and every time i go down there and you ride by mystic street it evokes you know a lot of really cool things it's a great place You never want to talk You never want to talk to me You know it's time To search for a new hope to find Let go Following Juniper is the melancholic waltz 
Can't Stand Yourself. Lori's heartachingly beautiful vocals deliver a deceptively complex melody over subdued rhythms, sustained piano notes, and John's sympathetic lines of lap steel guitar. That was really fun doing that in the studio in Chicago, home studio. And um, great too. Yeah, uh, it was really fun. That was one of my favorite ones to sing harmony on, I remember. And um, it just had this like sort of, it really set the tone, a little bit of a bleak vibe, you know, which I really love. And it reminded me of, you know, John Martin, John Beverly Martin or something like that. And uh, I love that vibe. The sadder the folk, the better, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> might be the saddest thing of it was a little bit of a bleak time for me it was good because you know something was coming out of it and i never really wanted to be you know a person that was writing bleak songs i like those songs i mean i grew up listening to these songs and they really struck me you know anything from the bleakness of like the smiths so that song i don't know it just kind of came out so you can't really give a real, um, you know, definite answer to what that song is about or who it's about or, or anything, but it's just basically like how I was feeling at the time. And some of it was uh, how I felt about myself and some of it was how I felt about other people in, in my life. So, and, you know, I was kind of ashamed of it a little bit and you know I sent it to John and he was really supportive <laughs> he said he loved it and I was I was thrilled you know because uh because I felt like it was a good song and I, I wanted it to get out there you know. yeah it was so real and personal and everything it's just you know right. it was kind of undeniable in that way and I think it fit the tone of the record
The track A Merciful Night is a cosmic country number that contains the interesting combination of Moog synthesizer and pedal steel guitar. Isn't clear enough to move on. Mistakes were made in the design of this dream, but it's mine. It's a merciful night to keep myself okay until I hide his day. That was one of the big ensemble pieces we, we did, and, and it was just such a blast, such a uh, cool thing to have um, Pat and John Piercello and then Brad and all these guys and trying to do that you know that middle eight crescendo thing I'm trying to make that into something and the song is fine but definitely the accompaniment and everything on that I think that really makes it special makes it a, a really nice recording you know it had really nice harmony from Laurie but um, it's just another sort of like recounting of dreams on this record and that was one kind of like 10 years ago today somewhat I think the ensemble aspect is what made that really uh, a nice uh, moment. I love that song personally. I, I think it's a really good song. And I, I have the uh, the demos that we did at Thomas Street that are, it's just me and you on mm-hmm. uh, acoustic guitars. And it sounds great. And oh, cool. because it's a great song, you're discrediting your song a little bit. You know, I know an um, ensemble that's everything seemed bigger and better but i think the song is a very good song oh, i loved love singing on that song it's really i i love the whole the whole vibe of it it's great Continuing the country rock of the previous track, featuring singer-songwriter Will Kimbrough on baritone guitar and Lamb Chops Paul Niehaus on pedal still, is the driving We'll Meet Again, which is one of two songs on Arabella that the Starrett's share songwriting credit. And I'd be remiss if I did not point out what I believe to be the sweet spot of this song. Listen to this. It was the first time in my life 
good. Did that one in Nashville, and that song was, it was really like played around with for years before we recorded it, you know. And um, I think the first couple lines and the basic chord progression, as far as uh, the verse anyway, was written years back. It was one of those songs that never kind of formulated, and I kept working on it and working on it and working on it, and I, it just never came together. So John and I sat down, and John, you, I think you wrote the second verse. and That's um, right. I remember uh, that now. And then we, we were like, it needs bridge, so we put the bridge in, and there was a real, like, kind of rudimentary, like, song that had, had just been, you know, in the back of my mind for 20 years and I never I never finished it so it was finally finally got it finished <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah, really it came love out that great. Because, it, uh, it came out great you know, having Will play baritone guitar on that and then uh, Brad Jones uh, bass part is just you know it was just amazing <laughs> as Incredible. soon as he started playing on it it was like okay we got it, you know. Oh yeah, we tracked it with me and you on acoustics and G Wiz. Remember, right. and, and yeah. Brad came in and we did over to. Yeah, I remember um, doing the acoustics together on that song. Really having a good time with that. Just doing the, the strumming and everything, and that was it. Was a blast. It was. It, I love how it came out. memorable melody and catchy chorus along with lively instrumental backing provided by former and future members of Wilco, the perfect pop of Canadian Noon is just another example of what makes Arabella such a strong record. I was listening to a lot of Ronnie Lane, Slim Chance at the time. Like those records are kind of, yeah, country, skiffle, raggy kind of stuff. And, uh, but um, also it's like, like really dabbling with uh, open tunings. There's an interesting thing that came up after the fact. <laughs> this song has a little bit of a lift for sure from a Graham Nash tune, Military Madness, off songs for beginners. To make us want to try it all again Set sea for the other side, dear Wake up in a Canadian new <laughs> It was not intentional, but it's definitely a melodic lift from that tune. It's funny because 
it was another big ensemble song, two drummers, and you know Jeff Tweedy played electric on it and came up with kind of a great signature lick for it and everything. But um, I remember being on the road a little bit later with Tim and listening to songs for beginners, and we <laughs> we heard that song and we were we were all like, oh, I've heard that before. <laughs> and it was it's not like lawsuit material or anything but it's definitely you know that that sort of probably the same key and everything so um i was listening to that record uh, at that time i was just like oh my god that that yes okay um but um the song it definitely stands on its own enough and all the structure of it and everything sort of sets it apart in a good way but um it's like an impressionistic sort of song about, you know, just about again and like a pastoral sort of thing. The band, the Tragically Hip, we were on this Cross Canada tour with them, uh, and they had a party for all of the bands. It was called Another Roadside Attraction. They had a party and it was great. You know, they just had a big barbecue. Uh, they lived on Lake Ontario somewhere, you know, somewhere up in somewhere up in Ontario and it was awfully geary I guess actually and uh but Los Lobos was there playing acoustic and all the people that were all the bands that were there on the on the road were were playing I realized that's kind of where the memory of that song came from so it was pretty amazing and a great memory for sure it's great the perfect come down following the fullness of the previous track as the sparingly arranged number when you're not mine which also emphasizes one of the true strengths of Arabella its track sequence the majority of the record sequence alternates between Laurie and John's songs underlining the two distinct lyrical voices of the album John's songwriting often includes pastoral-like observations and a fascination with the natural world whereas Lori's lyrics are more personal and rooted in this world. And though they are distinctly different, the pairing of these songs do not distract, but rather complement one another, making it an album that's best experienced altogether. out and recorded that in 97 and 
you know, the band was on the road all the time. We were just, you know, working like dogs, you know, which was great. I'm definitely not complaining about that because, I mean, I wouldn't trade that for the world, but it was kind of a tough time. I think the main impetus for me wanting to record it again was because the Blue Mountain recording of it, which I, which I like. for the way I perceived the song be recorded. Uh, it was a lot more, you know, rocking. I didn't really see that song as that way, and it just turned out the way it did. And so opportunity to record it with John, I thought that would be the perfect way to record the song, which was, you know, very sparse and acoustic and harmonies that you could actually hear, you know, that weren't you know, being screamed, <laughs> was so happy to be able to record that song that way. And I, I, I love that version of it. It just came so naturally, and um, it was exactly what I always wanted that song to be. That was one we did, Laurie, in the Thomas house. Yeah. Like, really intimately, and, and yeah, right. and I remember that was, like, sort of, it kind of sounds a little different from everything on the record in a nice way, like, really acoustic. Um, right. Just really came out great. I love the way it came out, and I think that was uh, just right. So, um, sibling harmonies always make a difference, you know. Sibling bands that sing together. Oh yeah, Everly you Brothers know. and Delmore Brothers. Sure, Garagos and Brothers. Featuring drone-like rhythm guitars, melodic bass, and ample amounts of reverb, the track Golden Fence is a loose, dreamlike number that once again showcases the Stewart's always reliable vocal harmonies. I really love that song and you know it's definitely like very surreal and kind of again dreamy and and I, I really like the lyrics it's very understated song but I I really I love I love that song it's one of my favorite ones on the record I think that was a solo effort by me I, from what I remember yeah I think it was one of those ones that it was kind of like when you're not mine complete like more demo vibe more of the us hunkering down in that house in Thomas Street in Chicago and just kind of knocking it out. Um, 
sidebar actually that just crept into my mind about someone brought this to my attention and there was a show called windy city flippers or something like that and that house kind of a long story my landlord became a friend i ended up buying a building with him really interesting guy when he moved finally about three years ago he sold it to that tv show they showed my little like i lived in the <laughs> in the attic up there and they and they mentioned that you know some of yankee hotel foxtrot had been written there or something it was like some horribly egregious um um <laughs> like this like unfounded but basically um we recorded in the whole house i rented the whole house for a while and that's when where a lot of that stuff was done but um windy city flippers i think and uh i can't believe the guy sold out to a hgtv show it was he was really this kind of counterculture kind of dude actor guy but uh, that's another interesting thing as we near the end of the record we get the soaring atmospheric track if i hadn't blinked my eye which is the other song on arabella in which the steerits share songwriting credit Stars third sort of it's another six eight tune but it's kind of like more solid rather than juniper it's a little bit more rocking you know more on the backbeat but uh, again it was you don't really recall a lot of the lyrical content or anything like that i like the line i want to be where the phone will ring when the calls come in from the sea and i've always had a really interest in nautical culture which is probably a reason i ended up in maine and so um, I think it's that it was like kind of coming out even then. It's just, you know, you're in this kind of state, this dream state when you're writing songs and you're just trying to absorb things. And, you know, it's just all about the listener, really. It's all about the listener, what they, how they perceive it. And you keep it impressionistic and open-ended. And, you know, that's what the great songwriters do in a great way. I remember working on that song together and I can't recall what, lyrics i contributed or i I wish i could because i i saw that the other day in the liner notes and i was like what did i actually do on this i'm not really sure (laughs) but uh i think we might have done the basic tracks for that in chicago and then um had brad and uh john maybe in nashville play on that but that song anyway the only thing i can really say definitively about about that song being recorded or the song in general is that I I really like that song and it was one of the I guess the biggest challenges I've ever had as far as singing harmony on a song I 
I remember really, I think, working like harder than I'd ever worked on on singing harmony on that record. You know, if you're playing in a band like Blue Mountain, you know, we were loud and it was, I mean, it's a different way of singing. Even if you're singing harmony, it's not like gentle harmonies. You know, it's not like actually really picking out every single note that you're going to sing. And, and that song for me was really hard. So I worked at it constantly for, you know, weeks and finally got to a point where I felt like it was, <laughs> it was right. But when you're singing with people, it's, it doesn't matter who it is. If you're really singing like that and you're trying to really get those parts down, you know, there's, you have to sit down with that person and, and do it over and over again. At least I did at that point, you know, of course people get so good at it. It's effortless for some people, but that was a challenge for me. And it, so it was a really good experience for me, that song and, and the whole record really, as far as, as singing, you know. this great interplay of pedal steel, electric piano, and nylon string guitar. The track Solid Land is a melodically sun-drenched number that could easily be mistaken for some long-lost country rock gem of the 70s. Who's the one that'll give you a plan To get yourself out of a world that's mad That was that was really fun. You know, we were just really into a lot of um, Whalen record, Honky Tonk Heroes. But after that, and just pedal steel and just totally like kind of upfront bass and these little like production flourishes. Like for example, that nylon string. Although he played mostly keyboards on the record, this was a great uh, guitar part that Pat did. The little signature lick at the beginning, that was, you know, an attempt by me to like try to conduct some kind of signature lick. It's like, hey, do something, you know, kind of like, <laughs> get John Piricello to kind of do some kind of flourish on the pedal steel. And there was a lyric in that, that love is a summer house lyric was kind of something that I was kind of happy with, um, that refrain. And, uh, but, um, yeah, it was, it was cool. I mean, I, I, I love, 
the genre. I love um, digging into records like that. And, you know, and uh, so that was like pretty second nature, you know, a lot of ways. That song actually was in a Miller commercial. That's a funny sidebar to that. That that actually was like one of the only commercials I've ever like landed in. Um, and it turned out to be um, a product I really like, uh, Miller High Life. And uh, so I was I was pretty happy, but that was before the craft beer craze, of course. But um, I don't drink it very often anymore. Exuding a sense of warmth, Arabella concludes with the track "Mistral," an inviting number that once again features members of Wilco. Nearly two minutes over what many consider to be the perfect length of a pop song, "Mistral" is the longest song on the record but is truly the opposite of tedious. It's the kind of song you hate for it to end, and necessitates repeated listening. European tours I would just stay around Europe and um, bum around in France mainly my brother-in-law and sister they were always around Provence and I used to go and just kind of hang out with them in, in Arles and different places like that and I experienced a Mistral at one point which was amazing uh, and, and really kind of um, really kind of jarring really you know you can't think anything would be wrong with uh, south of france in the summer but when that wind howls you know it, it's it's weird it's kind of you know allegedly makes people go insane and crazy you kind of understand if it's like two or three days but that was a sort of inspiration for that song and it was kind of um just an, another sort of you know open tuning 12 string kind of you know jam and you know just kind of playing off the the guys, I think we arranged, probably arranged it in the studio there and everything. But that was, I think it was maybe the last thing we did for the record. I think we were all in the loft. I don't think we did a lot of overdubs on that. Yeah, I think it was just sit down, kind of, you know, live, pretty much live take, you know. That's right. So that's like Canadian Noon. Yeah, we did that the same day. That's right. That's right. And um, and Ryan Rapsis on drums, too. Yeah, Ryan and Glenn. So that was Ryan, Glenn, Leroy, Jeff, John Piercello. Yeah, that's cool. It was it was that same day. For the album art, the Sterrets use images of idyllic landscapes taken from vintage postcards. You know, they're so evocative. They're, they're so I don't know. There's the, the fleeting aspect of it, along with this sort of. Uh, care in terms of the hand painted aspect of it you know this quality of your hand painting something 
I don't know, these hand painted things are just given away into the world. You know what I mean? That's something to me that's really beautiful about that era, you know? Well, both my brother and I, we both loved, you know, ever since we were, you know, kind of old enough to be adults and spend our money, you know, go to vintage stores. And um, we were both really into just old stuff. And, you know, I always loved vintage stationery or, and the vintage postcards were always, you know, so appealing. Like there was hundreds of them, you know, usually these, you know, antique stores. And I just always loved the imagery and John was the same. And we ran across this batch of vintage postcards in Chicago and uh, at a store. And I can't remember what store it was, but images were real pastoral and they were real beautiful and the Chicago addresses were all, you know, right around where we were living at the time. And, um, and it just sort of made a connection. And so we decided to use that for the album art. Arabella is released on September 21st, 2004, through the Steerit's own Broadmoor Records, which had previously released the Autumn Defense's debut album in 2001. Unfortunately, the record would not reach as many listeners as the Steerits had hoped. We got a little bit of press on the record, but not a lot. And uh, at the time, uh, we had a record label that we co-owned that we put this record out on. And uh, it did not make a big splash, for sure. Basically, Tumbleweeds, that's the sort of sad part about the whole thing. You know, um, we didn't tour... Um, but, um, we, we had a really unsuccessful PR campaign from the Wilco management at the time, the Wilco PR, um, for whatever reason, I don't really know. It was a shame, you know, when you put yourself out there like that and things don't work out, it was freaking tumbleweeds. I mean, everywhere, you know? Uh, so that was a little sobering. Uh, we dealt with that in autumn defense as well, a little bit too, you know, just this, this kind of like, I don't know when you're just a little bit out of time from the trend of what's going on. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of entertainment out there and, but we had some great shows in Chicago and, uh, we had a good time with it. And, um, you know, it meant a lot to me that people that I really cared about their opinion, like the record. So you know, is what it is, but, um, but it's nice as, as people still tell me like, you know, and I've never heard that record and I heard it and I, re- I really love it. There's a really moving moment towards the end of William Wordsworth's seminal poem, Lines Composed a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey, in which the poet addresses his sister Dorothy and expresses gratitude for their relationship and that in this moment together, they get to share the view of a beautiful pastoral landscape. Similarly, through their bond as siblings and their talents as musicians, John and Lori Sturrett took advantage of a moment in time to once again make music together, and in doing so, were able to create a beautiful landscape that fully embodies the love and support they have for one another. It was great. It was just a really uh, great time and a great community of people and um, and it was great to, you know, spend that time with John and, uh, it was the first time in, you know, years that we'd, we'd actually really sat down and sang and worked on something like that. Just the two of us, not being in other bands or being in the same band together with other people. It was, it was just our thing. 
for the most part, had a great relationship all our lives and supportive and, you know, family's very important. And, you know, I'm happy to, to have been able to make this record with John. And it was a great uh, time we, we were able to spend together and it's, it's documented and something we worked on together and, you know, uh, so I'll be able to remember that forever. And that's, I think that's, you know, just, it's just great. I'm very happy about that. I'm glad we had that time to, to really do that. It was really, you know, great moment in time for us to, you know, living in the same place at the same time with that, with a little time on our hands and, and uh, to be able to focus and, you know, hopefully get a chance to do it, do it again sometime. That would be amazing. It's a little hard. Might have to be, (laughs) you know, after after my daughter gets um, out of high school, but. um. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Lori and John Stewart for speaking with me about this very special record. Another special thanks goes out to Lori and John's late father, Avery Stewart, who passed away in April of this year, and without whom the Stewarts believed their lives and music would not have been possible. They love this record, and therefore this episode is dedicated to him. You can stream Arabella and more from the artist's individual projects on the various streaming platforms. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.